Welcome to The Dark Divide, a podcast that takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss. This is the story of Andrew Bagby. You stand on the rocky ledge where the wind could almost break you in two, where the ocean holds its own secrets, on the coast where the land and sea cradle each other like blood and bone, where space is ruthless and time is nothing. You are so small as the lines of sky blur into a wide open dreamscape. It leads out to endless blue until beginning and end have no clear distinction. You want to believe that you will not drown, that your steady feet will not falter, that you will see it before it happens. Your tiny lungs of steel will catch every warning sign, each spare breath to deeply draw into, and you will give it back to the earth again, like you always have. When the tide rolls in, will you have been able to see its billowing blows coming? its salty sway ready to take you and all the time you thought you still had prisoner. The surface of your strength held hostage in the deep of night. The water was always waiting, but you never ever knew. When someone dies, we tend to regale each other with words like charming and charismatic, friendly and well-liked. Things like, they had eyes that lit up from the inside out, a smile that could change the entire feeling of every room they walked into, a kindness for each person that knew no limits. Whether saint or sinner, most of us believe that in some way it's better to not speak ill of the dead. We like to preserve the best memories of them. Something about that particular type of absence makes it feel necessary to amplify the goodness that they left behind. But when it comes to Andrew Bagby, they seem more than true and easily proved, not just by the many beautiful stories his friends recall about him, but simply by the person that he was. He didn't seem to be just friends with everyone he met. It's as if he became everyone's person, the one you'd call when you're in trouble, the one you'd want around when life feels easy and for all the little moments in between. He never missed the big moments either, having been the best man for several of his friends' weddings. Andrew made it easy for people to be themselves, and he had an encyclopedia of inside jokes for every special connection he held with those around him. When a time of celebration arose, almost every person in his life would immediately call on Andrew to be present. Grab your glass. We're going to turn over to the best man, Andrew. This man's a little bit of a poor 
basics. I mean, the best man is really the groom. I've got to try and sum up 20 some odd years in like two minutes or so, because, you know, then people will start looking at the champagne and thinking, bag me, shut up or die. <laughs> um, Andrew was never married himself, although he was engaged to a woman named Heather Arnold for some time. They never set a date because he was unsure about whether he would be leaving for school or staying home in California. The engagement was called off anyway, just not being able to make things work out, but they remained close friends. When Andrew would later leave California, he gave his parents, David and Kathleen, his full blessing to still dote on Heather in the very same manner that they had throughout their relationship. Heather would even live with them for some time while Andrew was away at school, almost becoming a surrogate daughter of sorts while she figured out her own future. Most of Andrew's circle met him during childhood, and there's something to be said for lifelong friendships. Not just for their history, but for the precedent they set as you steer off into new chapters of life. It was those friendships that helped sustain him through the disappointment of not getting into medical school after graduating with his Bachelor of Science degree in Biological Science from the University of California in Irvine. Andrew was intelligent and, from a young age, extremely determined to end up in the medical world, no matter what it took. Being the child of a nurse, he held a deep respect for the field. He worked for a year as a researcher at Stanford University and made the most of that time, even if it seemed that his dreams had to be put on hold. By the time Andrew applied to and was successfully accepted into medical school in Newfoundland, he had a strong foundation of people who loved him and knew him well. So for as scary as it might have been to take that flight from California to the eastern coast of Canada, it was that very foundation that allowed him to dive into the risk of something big and brand new. And so by 1996, Andrew would find himself in the small city of St. John's, Newfoundland, joining the graduating class of 2000 at Memorial University, a province known for its lush landscape surrounded by ocean coast, small-town living lined with colorful tiny houses and simple pleasures. And this is where Andrew would fall in love with being a doctor, fall in love with life on the East Coast, and also where he would meet Shirley Turner. Like many children of divorce, Shirley Turner carried the wounds of her youth into her adult relationships. Both Andrew and Shirley shared a similar background of their parents being from separate countries and meeting while their servicemen fathers were on tour. However, their upbringings and the examples of love they were shown couldn't have been more different. Shirley Turner was born on January 28th of 1961 into a large family where she claimed her needs were not met. She described her mother as a strict woman with many problems, who was rarely affectionate. Although she was not abusive to Shirley, she was neglectful and dismissive. Shirley often hinted at her father having problems with substance abuse and didn't really have much to say about him otherwise, as he died when she was very young and she never really knew him. Their connection was also strained when her parents would divorce in 1968. Shirley's mother would leave their home in Wichita, Kansas to return to her home in Newfoundland, Canada, bringing Shirley and her siblings with her. Her parents never reconciled. 
Having only been seven when she experienced this, it makes sense that a mix of a broken home as well as unattentive parenting led to a lack of stability and emotional strength in Shirley. Children in these situations can often become more prone to being clingy and needy, but remain inconsolable in their distress. Shirley's tendency to act out, become oversensitive and teeter between intense moods was something that would continue into her adult relationships. In between Shirley's own chaotic and failed relationships, her mother would later live with another man, whom Shirley would grow a strong bond to, finally providing her with the fatherly connection she was so desperate for. Eventually, that relationship would also break in two, and Shirley's mother would move to Ontario after this separation. But Shirley maintained contact with him. He became ill, and she remained close with him until he died. For Shirley... Not only was this another betrayal that widened the gap of the strained relationship she had with her mother, but it once again left her heartbroken and alone. It seemed that no man stayed for very long, no matter how tightly she held on, no matter how much of herself she gave. Shirley and her siblings mostly survived on welfare while growing up, and experiencing a childhood that was extremely frugal, she grew up determined to have a successful life and career. Because of her parents' divorce and relocating, she had dual citizenship and held passports for both Canada and the United States. This meant she could seek and obtain educational and employment opportunities in either country, and almost immediately she decided on something in the medical field, thinking that this would bring her the biggest amount of financial success. Shirley was always getting good grades, and she focused her intelligence into her academic abilities, which were highly impressive and never fell short. In 1981, during her second year of her science and education undergraduate program, she would marry a welder in Parsons Pond, Newfoundland, with whom she had maintained a long-distance relationship. This was both their first marriage, and they would have two children together, a boy and girl. For most of the marriage, her husband would be a stay-at-home father while Shirley remained nearly eight hours away in St. John's to complete her second and third year. By this time, she had decided she wanted to continue her education at some point to become a doctor. Their relationship was rocky, especially given the strain that Shirley was rarely present to be either a wife or mother. She also held a strong dislike for her mother-in-law, and rarely allowed her to play any sort of paternal grandmother role in her children's lives. At one point, Shirley and her husband moved to Labrador City, where she would teach science for a few years. Apparently she was popular among her students, however, it wasn't enough for her. She always knew that eventually she would want to return to school to further her career and work in the actual medical field. As things began to deteriorate with her husband, she started seeing a fisherman she'd had a previous relationship with in Labrador before her first marriage. She was in the city and he was on the south coast, but she still found a way to make it work. She would travel with her children, keep them with a family member who lived at Parsons Pond, and then take the ferry over to where he was. She and her first husband would separate by March of 1987, and the following January, their divorce would be finalized. She would have an abortion somewhere in between this time, but the father is unknown. And by July of that year, she would marry the fisherman, but it would be short-lived. They, too, would separate in March of 1991, just shortly after their child and her second daughter was born. Shirley continued teaching until 1993. After her fifth year of teaching, she would decide to return to Memorial Hospital to continue working towards her dream of becoming a doctor. Her friends and family couldn't believe that she'd go back to school full-time with her children being so young and needing so much, 
but she reassured them that her degree would take just a year to complete and then she would resume teaching. She finished her fourth undergraduate year in May of 1994. During much of this time, her first husband came back and lived with her to take care of her children. They lived under the same roof, but separately and apart. During the stay, a man who was boarding with Shirley made reports of alleged child abuse that he'd witnessed with two out of the three children, most of it being directed at the older daughter. He claims that she would hit her for no reason, that the children were left alone in the evenings often, alone and unsupervised, and that she would often swear and curse at them. Even though their father said he was aware that Shirley was the main parent in charge of disciplining them, he never witnessed any of these acts. However, when the children were interviewed by social services, they did not deny any of these reports. After three failed attempts to reach Shirley by telephone, social services just gave up and the case was closed. In the summer of 1994, Shirley announced to her family that she would go back to school to obtain her medical degree without her children in tow. She was accepted and by September she would leave for St. John's alone. Her children stayed behind in Parsons Pond, living with her first husband's mother, who lived across the street from him. Her third child from her second marriage lived in Portland Creek with her father. For some time between 1995 and 1996, all three children lived with Shirley, and how they were financially taken care of during this time isn't clear, but by early 1997, Shirley told her family that the medical degree was too demanding for both studies and the responsibilities of motherhood, and they would soon return back to their original living arrangements. When it came to providing for herself, she made the most of scholarships here and there that she was granted. Another significant point is that for all three of her children, Shirley would be able to receive the baby bonuses, annual tax-free benefits of anywhere between $5,000 to $7,000 per child. She claimed she would bank them on the premise of them being a university scholarship for them when they were older. Unfortunately, in 2000, when her son wanted to attend university, she confessed to having been spending them the entire time and that there were no funds for her to give to them. Shirley also had a few tumultuous relationships outside of her marriages. During her residency in the winter of 1996, one year before her divorce from her second husband, she'd met a man nine years her junior. When a new job included him relocating and also a disinterest in a long-distance relationship, he broke up with her. She would call him incessantly, and even showed up at his house with her belongings, convincing him to let her move in and refusing to leave. The relationship would somehow continue for nearly two years, this man remembers two significant events that stand out during their relationship. Being hit in the jaw with her high heel pump during what he viewed as a harmless argument, and a night when he had to take her to the hospital because she'd become so intensely distraught, apparently for no reason. In late summer of 1998, he moved from St. John's to Pennsylvania. He figured that their relationship and Shirley would finally be behind him, but he was wrong. Shirley would travel from St. John's and show up unannounced on several occasions. On the night of April 7, 1999, he would return to his home to find her on his doorstep in a black dress, holding a bouquet of roses with a suicide note. Shirley had ingested a bag of potato chips, a 20-ounce bottle of Pepsi, 23 milligrams of Unisim, which, as far as I can tell, is simply an antihistamine, and 25 milligrams of Nuzone, which is a pill for nausea. Just shortly before this, in May 1998, she had graduated from the faculty with an MD degree and became known as Dr. Shirley Turner. 
For someone who is a doctor, she didn't choose any medications or amounts that would lead to her death, so it appears that this suicide attempt was a false presentation used to ignite fear, stemmed from manipulation and desperation. And for some time, she kept contacting him with threatening phone calls like, Soon you'll be six feet under. I'll stab you. You'll die. And the time will come when I'll have to call your family and friends. And also made threatening phone calls to his parents. The man would add deadbolt locks to his doors and even eventually have a roommate stay on his couch for the next several months, sleeping with an axe in reach. Between 1998 and the year 2000, Shirley continued her medical training as an intern and then as a resident in various Newfoundland teaching hospitals in Corner Brook, Norris Point, and St. Anthony. Many complaints were made about her during her residency. She was praised for her knowledge and skills, but often seen as defiant, unapproachable, and emotional. She would attempt to lie and manipulate others, and during times of confrontation would scream hang up on her higher-ups, and cry. But the good and her ability to manipulate always seemed to outweigh and outwit the bad, and her training continued. She would also continue her training back at St. John's, where she started. Her residency was in family medicine. This is the program she shared with Andrew Bagby, and where they would meet for the first time. And this is how Andrew's life would change forever. Like many of Shirley's relationships, dating Andrew was chaotic and short-lived. It didn't take long for Andrew's closest friends to find her clingy, inappropriate, jealous, and emotionally demanding. A few people were aware of Andrew's insecurities, especially after the engagement with Heather was called off. Andrew had lost his first love. His joking comments of self-deprecation seemed innocent enough. But there was obviously a real, insecure sorrow somewhere deep in his heart that he felt he would never be able to mend. Whenever someone told him he could do better than Shirley, and even urged him to, he said that he probably couldn't. In some ways, we all tend to attract invisible clasps that latch onto our open wounds and hidden weaknesses without even realizing it. It makes sense that somebody as controlling and needy as Shirley would have immediately been drawn to the ease and kindness in a person like Andrew. Until him, she had never quite found a match that would allow her the last word, make excuses for her painful outbursts and dramatic behavior. Shirley met Andrew at a time in his life when he was the most vulnerable, possibly the most lonely. Some of her gestures of devotion may have been over the top, but to Andrew, they were gestures he wanted. From Shirley, most likely not. But beggars can't be choosers, and Andrew figured it was as good as anything until his life changed. In some ways, it may have been a welcome relief to not be the person who wanted the other one more. To feel needed. To have someone say they didn't know how they could live without you. And during the times where he should have been more forthright about his boundaries, and Shirley's complete lack of respect for them, he always seemed to let it go. Whether because of her master manipulation of his emotions or just because of his emotions themselves, stemming from a big and wild heart that always wanted to see the best in every person, Shirley never seemed to take no for an answer. And being loving was always the easier way for Andrew, because that's how he was. In the words of one of his closest friends, Andrew didn't know how to be a son of a bitch, because he wasn't a son of a bitch. 
During one of Andrew's visits home, his mother Kate would ask him about Shirley and how serious they were. Andrew denied Shirley being anything of a serious girlfriend. She was much older than him, with two marriages under her belt and three children, a situation that didn't appeal to Andrew, being in his early 20s. Not only that, but he really wanted to concentrate on his studies, and he wasn't interested in a commitment, but he liked having a friend to party with. His father David recalls seeing Andrew on the phone with Shirley once, his ear pressed to the receiver, a book in hand, claiming that Shirley could go on and on, only needing a "Uh uh-huh response every once in a while to continue. He and David would also have their own phone conversations with Shirley during this time. Even if Andrew was out, Shirley would continue on and on for hours without pause. She'd talk about her studies, personal details about ex-husbands, whom she said tried to hold her back from her ambitions to become a doctor, and her children, whom she claimed were not with her because they were so well looked after by their grandparents. Eventually, Kate and David began screening the calls, leaving them to only be answered when Andrew was home. She seems nice enough, Kate said to her husband, but it's so tough to end the conversation. Kate and David would meet Shirley in person eventually, flying to California with Andrew as his date for a friend's wedding. Again, she seemed nice enough, bubbly and talkative, but they didn't spend too much time with her. Shirley would also visit without Andrew a few times. She took her children to Disneyland for Christmas in 2000, asking if they could stay with them for a few days while on the way there and a few days on their way back. Kate and David readily agreed, looking forward to the chatter and noise of children in their home once again. It wouldn't be until summer 2001 when they would have a closer look at Shirley's personality. She visited with her college friend Raina and Raina's husband and five-month-old baby. Shirley didn't have much interest in the baby, which was just fine to Kate and David, who were absolutely delighted to soak up as much time with him as possible. Not only did it give them a dose of nostalgia about Andrew being a baby, but when Raina made the comment about how they would be wonderful grandparents, they couldn't help but feel absolutely gleeful at the daydream of Andrew finally starting a family. Kate and David already planned to move closer to Andrew, wherever he would end up when that happened, so they could be as present as grandparents as they had mother and father to Andrew. Shirley did make a comment about how she wanted to have another baby. Kate and Raina were both shocked, telling her that they couldn't understand why, with already three children, a medical career underway, she'd want to add another baby into the mix. Shirley laughed it off, explaining maybe it would give her the chance to be a better mother than she had to her other children, and that ideally the father would be a doctor. At one point during the visit, Shirley made plans to take everyone out for dinner to a restaurant Andrew had told her about. Kate mentioned that she didn't have to, and it was on the expensive side, but Shirley insisted. Shirley felt the need to put a newfie twist on everything they talked about at that dinner, almost insulting with every remark she made. Greg had finally had enough, mentioning he'd grown up in Newfoundland, that it was a beautiful place to work and raise a family, and that sometimes he gets tired of the negative stereotypes that get tossed around. Shirley suddenly got up from the table in a huff. After a few minutes, Kate excused herself and found Shirley in the bathroom, crying hysterically on the shoulder of a stranger. "'I hope you realize that Greg and Raina are using you like some cheap hotel,' she snapped. Obviously, she didn't understand that if they were somehow abusing their hospitality, so was she. The rest of the dinner remained tense and quiet, and when the check arrived, Shirley grumbled about the total. "'Well, I guess you all expect the rich doctor to pay for this.' Greg and David would put their shares on the table, even though it had been her idea. 
Like the majority of Shirley's relationships, they too would have their fair share of trying to make it work through long-distance circumstances. Andrew went to Syracuse, New York to practice surgery and hated it, realizing so quickly that it just wasn't for him. He wanted something more impactful, something closer in relationship to the patient besides blood and bones. He eventually would venture off to practice in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and dive deep into family medicine and fell in love with the connection he held with his patients and the positive impacts he could make by being an empathetic and caring doctor. While he was figuring out what he wanted to do and essentially who he wanted to be in his practice, Shirley would also leave St. John's and head off to Iowa, first in Sac City and then later Council Bluffs. There she got an apartment and secured her own position in family practice. She had no contact with any of her children while she stayed there. Shirley would visit Andrew often, usually being the one to pay for the flights and dates that they had while she was there. Sometimes she would even show up unannounced, but Andrew usually didn't think anything of it. However, on one occasion, she'd left from a visit and called him from the airport, telling him she was worried because she'd mistakenly left the front door unlocked. Andrew returned home to find his checkbook, laptop, CDs, Palm Pilot, and a few other things missing. It appeared that this, if in fact a robbery, was extremely selective. There was no tampering with the doors or elevators in the building, and no other apartments reported theft of any kind. By now, Shirley's boundaries were dissipating by the day. She never hesitated to cross those lines, such as making phone calls to his ex-fiancee, Heather, at one point telling her that Andrew had gotten her pregnant and they were fighting because he wanted her to get an abortion. Later, she told Heather that they'd made up and that they both wanted to keep the baby. The pregnancy was a lie, of course. One could speculate to try and make Heather jealous or, in the least, to make Andrew look bad. Andrew's friends would often witness his house phone calls and pager going off incessantly, with it always being Shirley. Like many of her past relationships, Shirley couldn't seem to take no for an answer. In October of 2001, Shirley insisted on accompanying Andrew to a wedding he'd invited her to. Even though Andrew had made it clear that they were broken up over a month before, she convinced him that it would be a good time. It's unclear why, but it seems that Andrew wanted the company and didn't want to arrive alone. In the least, maybe it would allow them to part amicably, and things would finally smooth over. During the wedding, Shirley would act possessive and inappropriately, draping over Andrew constantly and even once accusing a married female friend of his of trying to sleep with the best man. During that weekend stay, Andrew had mentioned a date that he was going to have with a radiology clerk at his medical practice. Shirley was livid. Not only did she make several anonymous phone calls to the woman at the hospital, but she fought with him for the remainder of her stay. Andrew had had enough. This relationship was already over, and if Shirley didn't realize it, he would have to make it clear once and for all. On November 3rd, he drove her to the Arnold Palmer Regional Airport and broke up with her over lunch. He put her on a plane back to her apartment in Council Bluffs and drove home, looking forward to his date that night and finally feeling the weight on his chest that had been stuck there for months, slowly lifting to reveal freer and easier days ahead. Early on the morning of November 5th, 2001, Andrew awoke to frantic knocking at his door. It was Shirley. He couldn't believe it. 
She must have immediately gotten in her car after her arrival in Council Bluffs and had driven the entire distance, almost nearing 1,000 miles. She begged Andrew to rethink his decision or, in the least, to talk to her. He had to get ready for work at the hospital that morning, but told her he would meet her in Keystone later that night, a national park just down the street from where he lived. When he got to work, Clark Simpson, one of his co-workers and closest friends at the hospital, immediately noticed that something was wrong. <sighs> You'll never believe who showed up at my door this morning. That psycho bitch. Clark was uncomfortably shocked, and even more so when Andrew mentioned that he was going to see her after work. Clark warned him not to meet up with her privately, but Andrew laughed off his paranoia. I'm going to need some beers and catching up when this is done, Andrew told him. He was meeting Shirley around 6 and figured he would make it to Clark sometime around 7. But by the time 7.30 rolled around and he still hadn't heard a thing from his buddy, Clark had an uneasy feeling that something was up. He took a look at his place, which was only a block away from his, around 9pm, and Andrew's car wasn't there. When Andrew didn't show up to work the next morning, a heavy feeling lodged itself into the pit of Clark's stomach. Andrew wasn't answering his phone and that wasn't like him, nor was missing a shift without notice. Uh, you reached Andrew Baggs. We received a message at the time. Thank you. Hey Baggs, this is Clark. Uh, just called to say hello and see where you're at. I'm going to stop by your house here in about five minutes and meet the piss out of the work. There was a tense feeling that had the entire staff on a strange alert and by 9am, news that a body in scrubs had been found in Keystone Park knocked the wind out of all his closest co-workers. Clark and the residency director would gather everyone in the conference room to confirm their greatest fears. Andrew Bagby was dead. Andrew had been discovered in the park, lying face down in his scrubs, several feet behind his car. He'd been shot five times, once in the face, once in the chest, twice in the buttocks, once in the back of his head, and he also had blunt trauma to his head as if someone had kicked it. It was obvious that he'd been killed, not just violently, but angrily and with hatred. Because of the person Andrew was, nobody could understand such an act. Nobody ever thought something like this could happen. Upon hearing the news, Kate and David immediately flew to Pennsylvania with the intention of retrieving their son's body. Before they got on the plane, they quickly jotted down a new will and testament on a napkin, realizing their current one left everything they had to Andrew. The plane ride consisted mostly of them making plans of their own suicides when they'd return, feeling as if they had absolutely no reason to go on, and no belief that they would ever survive this sorrow. Even if they could, what was the point? They listened to passengers complain about the pillows and slight turbulence, wishing so badly that their biggest problem could be something as meaningless as those. They would attend numerous memorials for their son, allowing the residents of the medical program in Latrobe and also Newfoundland to pay their respects in ceremonies. It's not surprising that all the events held such large attendance, once again making it so heartbreakingly evident how loved and loving Andrew was. One of Andrew's closest childhood friends, Kurt, made a plaque for Kate and David, reading out its engraved words to them during his speech at the funeral noting how so many of Andrew's closest childhood friends had been raised right beneath their roof. We are your children. You still have children, and we love you. Eventually, Andrew's ashes would be buried in the most important places of his past, 
one-third at his hometown, one-third buried in England with his late grandparents, and one-third with his late uncle Bob, whom he'd been extremely close to. Since Andrew's death was ruled immediately as homicide, they would remain in Latrobe during the investigation. During this time, Andrew's friends from the hospital would visit them in shifts, coming over to bring them food, to talk with them, to cry with them. David recalls their daily routine during that time. Wake up, cry, make tea, read the newspapers, call friends and family to update them and grieve together, and then eat whatever the hospital staff who had visited brought that night. It was a time of pure existing, with no living included. But their mourning saw no end in sight, as the investigation would continue on. Even though Shirley told the police that she was homesick all that day, Clark knew different. Clark knew she had been in Pennsylvania, and thus, the investigation of murder on Shirley Turner would begin. At first, the case appeared open and closed. It didn't take long for everyone who knew Andrew to speculate Shirley's involvement. She was the only person who seemed plausible and capable, given her dramatic tendencies and stalking behavior she displayed in the recent past. Beyond speculation, there were specifics. A man had seen Andrew's black Toyota next to Shirley's SUV in Keystone Park at 6.10 p.m. that evening. Andrew had been shot with 22 caliber bullets. There were five used rounds, plus one live round found on the ground by his body. On October 11th, Shirley had purchased a permit which allowed her to buy a gun. On the 16th, she bought a pre-owned HP-22 Phoenix Arms semi-automatic 22 caliber handgun, along with a box for storage and transportation although she did not apply for a permit which would have allowed her to have the gun on her person. Shirley had attended three lessons with a firearm instructor, missing the last one she'd had scheduled on the day Andrew was killed. Her firearm instructor verified to police that her gun would sometimes eject live rounds. At first, when police asked her to take the gun into her local department, she said she didn't know where it was. She even called her instructor, claiming the gun had been stolen and wondered aloud why somebody would steal it but not the storage container the gun was in. But by November 7th, she would admit to police she hadn't been truthful about the gun, now claiming that she'd given it to Andrew, because Andrew had asked to borrow the gun under the premise that Shirley planned to buy a nicer one at Christmas. After the police called her, Shirley would contact several people, Heather being one of the first, and she told her that Andrew was dead and had been shot, she continued calling Heather throughout this time, telling her details about how she was the last person to see Andrew, that she'd miscarried his baby, how their lovemaking was passionate and things had been working out between them again before his death. She also made it a point to call extended family members, telling them about what happened and how Andrew had asked her to drive there to bring the gun, and quote, like the stupid I am, I did what he wanted me to do. She was asked by one family member if she'd stopped anywhere for gas, but she didn't reply. She also went on to tell them how Andrew had put the gun in a white plastic bag 
They kissed goodbye, and she'd left. Shirley stated that his death was probably a drive-by shooting. Just five days after Andrew's murder, Shirley would leave the U.S. and fly back to Canada. She went to Toronto and stayed at a hotel, telling a friend out of fear that Andrew's killer would come after her, too. She would later tell Andrew's father that leaving was done on the advice of one of her two attorneys, who said, get in your car and go to Canada. However, in Toronto, she would inform a family member in Newfoundland that she'd come to Canada because her son had been injured in a car accident. This was false, because the accident didn't occur until after she'd arrived. While out of the country, state troopers would execute a warrant to search Shirley's apartment in Council Bluffs. This would grant them their first piece of physical evidence, a box of condoms that matched the lot number of a box purchased by Andrew on the night of their breakup before his date. During this time, police were unable to make an official charge for the suspicion of Shirley's involvement in Andrew's murder. From the very beginning, the investigation pointed to her, but with no gun and only circumstantial evidence to go on, they would need something concrete. Cell phone ping technology was still quite new, and tracking the tower pings of her phone calls during that drive from Council Bluffs to Latrove would take a minimum of two weeks, something that today might take a day or two at the most. By November 14th, Shirley would fly from Toronto to Newfoundland. She soon contacted a family physician for herself. At the appointment, she presented herself full of grief over Andrew's death, suffering from stress of the recent events. She requested and received a referral to a psychiatrist. However, she didn't want just any psychiatrist. She specifically wanted a referral for Dr. John Doucette, a psychiatrist she'd known during her fourth year of medical school. She would only have to wait two days until seeing Dr. Doucette after her referral. This wasn't Shirley's first time seeing a psychiatrist. One of the notes she had written before her 1999 suicide attempt was written to a female psychiatrist she'd been seeing. Also, in 1998 and 1999, she had seen a St. John psychiatrist who diagnosed her with major depression. However, Dr. Doucette would say her depression and anxiety in the past were situational, and diagnosed her as having major features of PTSD and bereavement, while suffering from adjustment disorder. Adjustment disorder is a group of symptoms such as stress, hopelessness, sadness, or physiological side effects that can occur when you go through a stressful life event. The symptoms occur when a person is unable to cope, and the reaction is often stronger than expected for the type of life event that occurred. These three diagnoses shouldn't exist simultaneously, so Dr. Doucette was careful to say that she prevents features of PTSD and bereavement. On November 16th, Shirley called Heather, asking her for a stethoscope because she was worried about her son who'd recently been in a car accident. It's unclear what Heather's response was, most likely a suggestion on taking him to an actual doctor or the emergency room. Instead, Shirley showed up at her apartment at one in the morning, unannounced, and Heather spoke to her, keeping Shirley in the hallway for the entire duration of a 45-minute visit before ending what was an awkward and strange conversation. She called Heather again the next day, preoccupied with who and who shouldn't participate in the memorial service for Andrew that was about to take place on November 20th. She called again on the 18th, leaving a message that confused Heather, saying, I'm calling because I really need to get in touch with Andrew's parents. If you could give them my number and have them call me, if you could do that or let me know if you can't, because then I can try another way of getting in touch with them. This confused Heather because she told Shirley previously and repeatedly on how she could reach them. The memorial service at the hospital was packed. 
Heather, among many other co-workers of Andrew's, spoke loving and kind words. The air was thick with heartache and confusion. Shirley was asked not to speak, although she still managed to make a scene by dramatically sobbing in the back of the room. Granted, she never reminisced about Andrew or even spoke his name to anyone she chatted with while there. She also verbally attacked Heather with degrading comments. After that, threatening phone calls were regularly directed to her. Heather was so uncomfortable and scared, she even asked a friend to stay with her for several months, fearing the worst of what Shirley was capable of. By November 29, 2001, the Pennsylvania State Police announced their arrest warrant for Shirley, and by December 6th, she retained a Canadian attorney, Randy Pierce, who had extensive experience in extradition. She was charged with one murder, motivated by a lover's rejection, and she could face the death penalty under Pennsylvania law. Canada, however, had abolished the death penalty, and an extradition process would have to take place in Canada before Shirley would be forced back to the U.S. Everyone hoped that the worst was over now, that in the least, if time wouldn't allow healing, it would allow silence and space from Shirley while the case unfolded. Kate and David moved through their sorrowful days with held breath, looking forward to seeing their son's killer behind bars. They, too, would spend their lives in a prison, sentenced to live in a world where Andrew no longer was. But nobody saw what was coming next. Nobody knew that the story was just beginning, that Kate and David's nightmare was about to turn down a long, dark road that appeared to have no end in sight. It would be only four weeks after the murder that Shirley would announce to the media that she was carrying Andrew's child. During a prolonged extradition process on July 18, 2002, Shirley gave birth to a little boy whom she named Zachary Andrew Turner. Kate and David rushed to the hospital as soon as they could, but she wouldn't allow them to go any further than the door. They stared at him for what felt like hours, five feet away, separated by a thick glass window, so close and yet so far, yearning to give the love and affection to a piece of Andrew that they never thought they'd reach, keeping their distance and respecting Shirley's wishes for fear of whatever scene she'd make. They complied and left him a gift. This first meeting would be accurate foreshadowing for all the ways to come in which Shirley would attempt to keep them at a distance, while taking what she could get in the name of her child and Kate and David's graciousness. Even though the proper paternity tests would be done, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that this was Andrew's baby. He was a spitting image of him, right down to the chubby cheeks and button nose they both shared. Kate and David knew right away what they had to do. There was no way they could allow the person who murdered their son to raise this child. Not only that, but the idea of having some piece of Andrew in living form, to still be able to live out that dream of being grandparents to Andrew's child, it gave them a light at the end of the tunnel, something to live for, a reason to wake up in the morning. Preparing to fight with every ounce of love and protection they felt for Zachary, the Bagbees would begin a difficult and heartbreaking custody battle with Shirley for months before the actual birth itself. When it came to applying for custody, they even had four backup parents willing to apply as well because of their ages. 
During this time, they stayed in Newfoundland while their life in California slowly fell away. Friends watered plants, paid bills, and managed their home while they were there. Kate took a leave of absence from work, and eventually David was let go from his job. It wasn't difficult for them to get letters of recommendation, or for every person who'd known them via Andrew to be in complete support of the idea of them raising Zachary. They practically raised most of Andrew's friends beneath their roof, giving meals and love and support to every person who was important to their son. They themselves seemed to be a match of remarkable fate, the kind of couple that makes you believe in the reality of fairy tales. David had met Kate while he was in the Navy, and she was in the United States, beginning her journey of allowing her nursing career to work her around the globe. They met on a double date with another Navy man and nurse, spending the day at Disney World. Within the first two weeks of knowing each other, they'd went on 13 dates. Within five months, they were married. They'd always wanted a family from the very start, and Andrew had been their miracle baby after a long two years of trying to conceive. Just as they were beginning to consider adoption, there he was. Kate and David's loss left a hole that could never be filled, but the idea of parenting Zachary was a beautiful silver lining to their unspeakable pain. Once again, they would have another thing to shower with love besides each other. When Kurt Kenny learned of his best friend's murder, he knew he wanted to do something special in the memory of Andrew. They had been friends since the first day of first grade and supported each other through their own life ambitions. From very early on, Kurt knew he wanted to make movies, and it wasn't uncommon to see him toting his camera in hand nearly everywhere he went. Andrew starred in many of his homemade films, often loving to play the bad guys, channeling that early boy-like aggression he'd grown out of by his teenage years. Kate and David were even a part of the films too, accompanied by ridiculous lines. Through take after take, Kurt's passion grew, and Andrew's respect for his craft did as well. Even when Andrew was saving up for medical school, he gave Kurt a check for $2,000 to back his first feature film. They were told that the law is slow, that this battle would be complicated. Court date after court date would pass them by, with nothing seeming to move forward at all. Throughout the custody battle, Kate and David would be awarded visitation rights with Zachary, one hour a week, supervised. They would be searched from top to bottom before entering the room, where a stranger would monitor their every move with their grandson like they were under the strictest scrutinization. But Kate didn't care. Anything to see those cheeks and hear that giggle. She'd show up with her cardigan already off, her hands stretched outward to her sides, anything to make the search go faster and get that door open as quickly as they could. They doted on him with kisses and cuddles, and Zachary took to Kate so strongly. They would bring formula and diapers and clothing, as Shirley would always ask for it. Eventually, they would be awarded one more hour a week after more legal battling, but it never felt like enough. The time always went so quickly. Shirley accused them of keeping him too long during their visits, insisting that it would make him upset and temperamental when he returned to her care. But Maureen, the visitation supervisor, didn't take kindly to the accusation that she'd failed at her job, and the accusation was quickly dropped. It didn't take long for Kurt to realize what he wanted to do. Now it wasn't just a means of closure or an ode to a friendship that meant much more to him, but it also seemed necessary to put together past clips and also interview friends and colleagues for Zachary. This child couldn't grow up without knowing how wonderful of a father he had. 
how many people's lives Andrew had changed, and also how many people loved and adored him before he was even born. The project would eventually become much bigger than Kurt or anybody would have ever predicted. By September 19th, Shirley's lawyer came prepared to attempt a stop of trial altogether, stating that the authority to proceed charge for the extradition supplied to the court had not only passed its 90-day limit, but also failed to specify a subsection of Section 229 of the Criminal Code, one being means to cause his death, or two, means to cause him bodily harm that he knows is likely to cause his death and is reckless whether death ensues or not. Shirley's lawyer stated it was far too late to amend, and no further authority to proceed charge should be allowed. Mike Madden, the prosecutor representing the United States, argued that even if the limit had been passed and the judge ruled that the current authority to proceed charge was invalid, it was at least amendable. The ruling about this would be postponed until October 18th. That date would be moved to October 22nd. Judge Derek Green would again delay the ruling until November 14th, where Green concluded that a properly instructed jury could probably find Shirley guilty and ordered her to be incarcerated in the Clarenville Correction Center for Women while awaiting the decision of the Minister of Justice to surrender her to the United States. Almost immediately, Shirley changed suit and decided to allow Kate and David to have full custody of Zachary for as long as she was incarcerated. Everyone from Heather to Andrew's professors to the Bagby's family lawyer, Jackie Brazil, showed up to see Zachary. Beyond the daily phone calls from the woman who murdered their son, they would have to drive Zachary to the Correctional Center for weekly visits. No matter how pleasant or dangerous the weather, without fail, Kate and David would drive the two hours there and the two hours back so she could see him. Each visitation day involved two separate visits. They would arrive after a long drive for a two-hour visit from 2 to 4 p.m. Then they would get a motel room, have lunch, tend to Zachary and allow him to have a nap before heading back to the center again from 5 to 7 p.m. before the long return trek home. We accept a phone call a day from jail to talk about Zachary. Which the foster home would have done anyway, see? This is Alliant Telecom. You have a collect call from... Shirley? You may press 1 now to accept the charge. Thank you. Hello? Hi. Yeah, hi. Are you babysitting? Just got up. He's a little teary-eyed, but... Hi, sweetheart. Zachary, how is our baby today? Oh, hi. Are you having a good day with Grandmom and Granddad? Zachary, I love you, baby. Mommy loves you. Mommy misses you. Christmas is coming, and you're getting all ready for Christmas. I hate every time I call you, I have to ask you guys a favor, but uh, you're not supposed to know. This is a surprise. Surprise for you from Zachary. I don't know what to get Zachary. Some of those frames, even at the dollar stores, will say, there'll be little sayings on them. Like, right, if you want right. to say, Mommy and Daddy on a frame, and stick right. a picture of me and Andrew in it. Right, I don't know. Right, or, right. you know, Mommy with Baby. What about the one of me and Andrew? Did you have anywhere to put that? or that Not one? yet. Not yet. Do you feel all right about putting that up? I mean, not quite yet. Yes, okay. But by January 10th, the unthinkable happened. Shirley, being out of money and with no lawyer, wrote Judge Derek Green for advice on what to do. Green's secretary replied with instructions on how to write her own appeal of his decision on keeping her incarcerated until the minister's decision on her surrender. 
Judge Gail Welsh would then oversee the appeal. It's unclear if she actually read the airtight police report from the Pennsylvania Department. She spoke highly of Shirley, being a doctor who was not only capable of representing herself and writing a valid appeal, but also an appreciated member of society who did not seem to impose a threat at large. Rather, quote, her crime, while violent, was specific in nature. She also ruled that there was no indication of a psychological disorder or illness. The fact that she'd spent most of her time in jail under suicide watch, had threatened an inmate with violence, or that eight people had restraining orders against her seemed somehow irrelevant. Welsh would order that she would have to turn in her passports, which would take away the possibility of her being a flight risk. Shirley was released on bail under the agreement that she would sign in with the local police station once a week. There would be a $75,000 of insurities if she failed to appear on her court date, 10000 of which was promised directly from her personal psychiatrist, which was, of course, a violation of his practice. No money was immediately required in any way for her bail, no due date given for any funds. The Bagbees would have to return Zachary with unwilling arms and heavy hearts. Once again, their son's killer would walk free. While they waited for the hearing date to be announced, Kate and David would continue to compromise with Shirley over visitation rights. They agreed to more contact with her in order to pass Zachary back and forth without the hassle of having to make third-party arrangements. Their visitation times were bumped up to at least three a week, a few hours each, and one overnight visit every two weeks. They'd attend events like movie outings and church like one big happy family. They would even go to swimming lessons, where only two parents would be allowed in the pool at a time. Shirley would never allow Kate and David to swim with Zachary together, so they would each take turns with her. Anyone looking from the outside in would never know that these smiling, laughing grandparents were aching on the inside with their own quiet rage of injustice. They would never, ever bring up the case, even though time and time again Shirley would attempt to go there. David would repeatedly remind her to allow the lawyers to entertain the details, for fear that she would keep Zachary from them. They believed it was necessary for Zachary to know them and feel safe around them as much as possible, so that the transition to living with them would be easy when Shirley would finally be in prison for good. When Shirley wasn't around, whose motherly movements seemed more rehearsed and forced than anything else, Zachary was surrounded by sweetness and affection. It was almost therapeutic for everyone who missed Andrew so dearly to have a piece of him to pour out all their missing into. Kurt even finally got to meet him, making his way to Newfoundland to continue filming what seemed to be such an unbelievable story, capturing a love of relentless fight, unfolding before everyone's eyes. He also finally confronting his own loss, walking the streets Andrew had, visiting with his friends from medical school, realizing they'd never make another movie together, that he would never have another new memory of his dearest friend. Not only was his project a greeting to Andrew for Zachary, but it marked a goodbye for Kurt, his creativity weaving a new kind of closure for them all. Now would be a time for healing and new beginnings, in the face of a tragedy that marked each of them in such a distinct way, there would still be love. Mama loves you, yes she does. Granddad loves you, yes he does. 
Daddy loves you, yes he does. Uncle cuts him, he loves you too. We all love you Sorry. while we can. Darling, darling, little man. By Zachary's first birthday on July 18th, the tension seemed to reach a new peak. Shirley organized a birthday party at McDonald's and he would continually become fussy and upset in her arms. Each time she set him down, he'd reach for Kate. He didn't care about opening birthday presents or being distracted by toys, he just wanted Kate. Shirley snapped at her. He loves you and not me. Why don't you just take him? Throughout their visits and phone calls, Shirley would continue to make disapproving comments about their treatment of him, claiming that Kate had called Zachary her child, that she was attempting to take her place, worrying that they would one day take him for a visit and never return. The next hearing in the extradition process would be set for September 25th, oddly enough what would have been Andrew's 30th birthday. This would be a day to celebrate, as she would likely be reincarcerated and surrendered to the U.S. and returned for trial. It was easy for Kate and David to abide by her wishes and bite their tongues, knowing the next chapter of their lives was just around the corner. It had been almost two years of this emotional roller coaster ride, so what more was two months? On August 18th, just one month after Zachary's birthday party, Kate and David arrived home to find a note on their door from the constable, requesting that they contact him immediately. He notified them that Shirley and Zachary were missing, and that a team had been put together for a search. Neighbors and relatives of Shirley's were interviewed. A search of her apartment took place, hospitals and ports of exit were checked, and the Canadian Coast Guard were requested to search nearby sea. Highway checks were put into place immediately, and any flight would be flagged. There weren't that many ways to escape from the small town, so Kate and David held their breath, waiting by the phone, hoping Shirley would quit whatever point she was trying to prove, that it would soon come to an end hoping it was some emotional misunderstanding caused by her regular antics. Family, friends, and even their local priests soon came over to comfort them as their minds tumbled towards different outcomes. Where had she gone? Would she return? Would they ever see Zachary again? They had just taken him to a swimming lesson two days before, noticing nothing unusual about her demeanor. They sat in their kitchen for three uncertain and overwhelming hours, hoping Shirley's guilt would kick in and she would call with some far-fetched story about why she'd left. Eventually, the constable called to let them know that they were doing a search at a nearby town beach at Conception Bay South. Their family attorney, Jackie Brazil, had been making her way to the residence to comfort them, calling their priest and asking him to stay because she might be coming over with some bad news. The fact that they were searching at such a specific and strange location set off alarms for her. Unfortunately, she would be right. That afternoon, she arrived with the constable to deliver the news to Kate and David. The bodies of a female adult and a male baby had been found near the shore, and they needed to identify them. There were no words left, no names for the feelings running through their veins. All the patience turned to rage, all the hope became sorrow. With one swift motion, once again, everything was taken away from them. They walked into the sterile room and were greeted with the familiar sight of a white sheet over the shape of a body, only this one so small and fragile. Their nightmare confirmed at the first glance of lifeless chubby cheeks and tiny blue fingers. Zachary hadn't been through the proper autopsy and was still forensic evidence. 
so they could not touch him. Kate's legs gave way beneath her, toppling to the floor like an infant herself, and David soon falling after. Jackie could barely get them up off of the cold linoleum, their bodies like dry cement, their howling grief echoing against the walls. Many of the same people who had attended Andrew's funeral also came to pay their respects to Zachary's miniature casket, a size coffins should never come in. Kate and David would dress him up in a suit that they'd bought him for professional pictures once, and included in the coffin were toys and stuffed animals that he'd loved. Heather would later tell Kurt during one of the interviews while filming that a lot of hopes and dreams and tears also went into that casket, too. Eventually, Zachary would be cremated, just like Andrew had wanted for himself. Andrew's body had taken the trek to the crematorium alone, and because this was something that haunted Kate with guilt and sorrow, she made sure to stay with Zachary the entire way. And I didn't go with him. Andrew wanted to be cremated. Oh, yes. Yes, he What did. bothers Kate is that she did not go with him to the I, crematorium and stay with him the, right to the end. He went from the funeral up to the crematorium all alone in plastic bags <laughs> with only his head sticking out. <laughs> Come on, Kate. He wouldn't care about that. <laughs> That's why we went right up to the oven doors with Zachary. Zachary's ashes would be spread in both England and St. Louis with his fathers. Far too soon would Andrew and his son be together in death and tragedy. Later, the mother of Shirley's first husband, whom she disliked and kept from her children, would be the only one to claim her body and arrange for her burial in Parsons Pond, Newfoundland. It didn't take very long for police to piece together when and how the pair had died. Sometime just after midnight, Shirley had taken Zachary for a drive. She had been living with her older son and his girlfriend at the time, and normally neither of them would have found this unusual because Shirley often took the baby for drives when he was fussy to settle him down. However, this particular night, Zachary was fine, and when she woke him up from his heavy sleep, he began to cry. The girlfriend thought it was a little strange, but didn't think too much of it, and went to sleep shortly after witnessing the two leave without explanation from Shirley. The next person to cross paths with her would have been an employee at a private care facility for seniors in Long Pond, which would have been about a 45-minute drive from Shirley's home. Part of Shirley's mission was trying to find both the workplace and residence of a man she'd been on two dates with, but she got so lost she had to stop and ask for directions. The man had quickly ended things with Shirley once his friend showed him articles about how she was accused of killing her last boyfriend. But having never been able to take no for an answer, Shirley proceeded to leave him over 200 voicemails, including one which she claimed she was pregnant and that he needed to stop being so immature to grow up and be a fucking man. Later, her autopsy would show that the pregnancy claims, like many in her past relationships, 
had been a lie. Earlier that evening, before taking her son's car, Shirley had called one of her friends from her apartment and left a message stating that she and Zachary were at the man's house and planned on staying there for the night. Once she did actually arrive, she parked the car near his home, leaving it there with a used tampon and two photographs on his property, one of her in Zachary and one of her in lingerie. She had also stopped at his place of work, where he was an ambulance driver, and left a similar photograph between the back door and door frame, but it wouldn't be discovered until six days later when the vehicle was getting serviced. Not only would she take another life from the Bagby family, but it would appear that all signs point to Shirley attempting to frame this man for what was about to happen. It was around this time that authorities believe Shirley dug into her purse to grab an Ativan prescription she'd filled the day before taking some after using the remainder of baby formula to dose Zachary with at least 30 tablets. She would then leave both the baby bag and the keys in the locked car, heading toward the coastline. It would only be after pressure from Kate and David, along with Child Protective Services, that the testing for the presence of drugs would be performed. Even though Zachary's autopsy listed his cause of death as drowning, the question of whether or not he'd suffered was something both parties churned over. The medical report stated that whole blood from his body was found positive for benzodiazepine with a concentration of 1.2 milligrams per liter, a large amount about a hundredfold greater than the therapeutic concentration. While there are no well-documented examples of lorazepam causing death other than deaths involving more hazardous drugs, this most likely would have been an amount large enough to dull or deaden the nerves in such a small body. In the very least, Zachary was most likely comatose in some capacity and didn't suffer during the drowning process. The trek would not have been a simple one. Shirley was wearing high heels just under four inches, carrying Zachary in her arms during an overcast night of heavy, thick mist. The help of her sweater tying him to her body so she could balance herself among the rocks and grass ledge. The trail to the coast's edge would have been somewhere between an hour and an hour and a half, to an hour and 45 minutes long. One can only wonder what thoughts ran through her mind besides an ideal place to meet the Atlantic Ocean. The first access to the sea was near Foxtrot Marina, where a man nearing the end of his night shift thought he heard a baby crying. In between songs on a portable CD player, he paused and glanced out into the distance, waiting to hear a repeat of the strange noise once more. When there was nothing but wind and the smell before rain, he continued along his way, thinking nothing of it. The only sure place to gain ocean access in the middle of the dark, wet night in platform shoes would be at the end of the wharf on Foxtrot Marina, where it protrudes just a little under a quarter of a mile into the ocean. Around 3 a.m., Shirley would clutch Zachary's body close to her and jump into the northern Atlantic, murdering her son and killing herself. Having no scrapes or bruises on her arms or legs, it seemed she had not fallen the whole night, a feat nearly impossible among wet rocks and uneasy footing. He must have still been tied tightly to her when she fell into the sea, even in the haste of her hatred and selfish despair, even in death. Shirley could not, and would not, bear the weight of being a mother. The clouds would break with rain soon after the plunge, Thunder and lightning lit up the sky with flashes and noise, the waves rising almost four feet in and out of the shore's border. 
the mist removing all visibility of what had once appeared so close. The future just now a foggy haze in the distance. Unfortunately, the police were called to the beach, not by instinct or suspicion, but by discovery. A husband and wife taking an early evening walk had spotted something strange by the shore. The husband told his wife to stay where she was as he walked towards the unfamiliar drifting figure. Once, only two feet away, he could tell it was a woman's body and called 911 from his cell phone. He asked his wife to walk away from the beach and waited for the police to arrive, staying by the body the entire time. Around the same time, 7.13 p.m., the Canadian Coast Guard had sighted the same body, face down, drifting not too far off along the shore. Three minutes later, about 150 feet further along the beach, was the body of a baby, face up, eyes open. Once more, Kate and David would have to rise, with shaky knees and unwilling hearts, to the cause which called to them. Again, the rage as heavy as lead and steel would need to find a purpose for the pain, even when they didn't want to. In time, they would answer to the call of enticing survival and build their tragedy into a fortress of change and determination. Even in death, Shirley would not win. Andrew would not lose. Zachary's loss of life could not be just for their demise. And with that started Zachary's story. A letter to his father, an ode to his grandparents, and hopefully a change to the Canadian legal system that would never, ever allow this heartache to lay itself upon another family again. To ease the pain in any way it could from the loss of their son, one of Andrew's colleagues had suggested to Kate and David to keep journals and write about their thoughts and feelings as often and as brutally honest as possible. Keeping a grief journal was extremely therapeutic for their sorrow, but now the writings would take on much more. David began to write a book called Dance with the Devil, and many of their entries would weave their way into the chapters, telling a story of loss explaining the flaws in a system which had somehow allowed a murderer to roam free and care for a child. David's anger and sadness fueled a new fight in him. No family should have to go through what they did. No criminal should be able to benefit from the loopholes and gaps in the legal system, and he wouldn't stop fighting until a change was made. We're taught to trust those in power to protect us, but time and time again, they had been let down and left helpless. Kurt took time off from filming, ready to scrap the ideal together and shove the footage to the back of his closet, to a detached corner of his mind. But once he'd discovered David was writing a book, he knew this footage had changed from letter to documentary. There were so many stories I wanted to tell you, and somewhere I hope you're watching. I almost gave up making this film when you were killed. I couldn't see the point anymore. But something kept me going, and then one day I realized what it was. The motive would mutate, but the meaning behind it would not change. Not only would he tell Andrew's story, but also Zachary's. And Kurt felt like the film could be supplemental to David's book, 
and the changes he wanted to fight for. His camera was turned back on, and once again, the tape would roll. Kate and David would take to the media whenever they could, and attended countless political events speaking on the injustice they'd experienced through the wrongful deaths of both their son and grandson. This shouldn't have happened, and they were determined to do everything in their power to make sure that no other family would have to endure such a senseless tragedy that could have been prevented, had only the right decisions of power been made. They also started a support group for other victims of homicides through violence, and Kate even trained to become a child advocate in the dependency court system. Kurt would continue filming to include their newfound activism. It wasn't an easy fight, but they were convinced to dedicate themselves to bail reform and have the laws that allowed Shirley to be allowed out on bail change for good. The entire process took seven years. The system had failed. It had failed Andrew, and then it had failed Zachary. No matter how long it would take, they were determined to not allow it to fail them again. When it came to light that Shirley's psychiatrist, Dr. Doucette, had offered to put up money on Shirley's bail fee, Kate and David launched a complaint against him in which he was found guilty of professional misconduct and ordered to undergo psychiatric counseling. Doucette was no different when it came to being molded by Shirley's lies. He had been unaware of most of her suicide attempts, and she had never mentioned to him that she'd suffer from major psychiatric disorder involving depression in 1998 and 1999 that another psychiatrist had treated her for. Whether it was Shirley's master manipulation or just his own lack of professionalism, Doucette played a major role in allowing Shirley to walk free. David would then assist in a child death review with Lloyd Wicks, a child and youth advocate for Newfoundland and Labrador, investigating deeper into the case to prove whether or not Zachary's death could have been prevented. Within that review, everything from Andrew and Shirley's childhoods and adult experiences, past relationships, medical histories, and testimonies from every faculty involved would be put into consideration. The whole picture, once fitted together like a puzzle, shows gaps of Shirley's lies and misinformation from parties failing to ask better questions. The system allowed her to work her maze of stories perfectly, manipulating one hand while the opposite remained clueless. Eventually, an assessment officer who had dealt with Shirley labeled her as a manipulative psychopath. However, at the time of her and Zachary going through the system, it seems that, having gone to medical school without any major psychosis being picked up, everyone just assumed this woman may be a liar, but was also capable of making rational decisions and taking care of a baby. Lloyd Wicks would conclude his findings to be a jumble of pieces. If all of them were located and examined individually, they probably would not have depicted either her delinquent parenting history or her, in my reserved opinion, seriously dysfunctional psyche. All the pieces have been found and collected together. They needed to be assembled to create a picture, and the resulting picture required examination, assessment, and analysis to obtain an accurate and complete appreciation of the potential for harm embedded in Dr. Turner's persona. Some of the pieces of the puzzle were, I conclude, located and assembled by the Child, Youth, and Family Services in St. John's. However, 
there was never a sustained initiative to undertake the perplexing, painstaking exercise of finding and connecting all the pieces to discern the messages that would have emerged from the resulting picture. It would have portrayed a woman who, throughout her adult life, frequently functioned outside the lines of socially and legally acceptable behavior and consequently posed a significant risk to her children's best interests. By 2007, David's memoir was published and instantly became a national bestseller. By 2008, Kurt's documentary, Dear Zachary, A Letter to a Son About His Father, was finished. Kurt had completed his final movie he'd ever make with Andrew. In early 2009, he sent out letters to every member of parliament and senator, offering to screen the film for them. He also rallied Gord McIntosh, a public relations consultant to help spread the word. By March, a special screening was held in an auditorium in the Capitol where the Liberal members of Parliament, Scott Andrews and Tommy Banks, were moved by the story. In 2009, a private member's bill was introduced. Bill C-464. And finally, by December, it became law, also known as Zachary's Bill. It added a clause to Section 515.10b of the Criminal Code, where the detention is necessary for the protection or safety of the public, including any victim or witness to the offense, or any person under the age of 18 years, having regard to all circumstances, including any substantial likelihood that the accused will, if released from custody, commit a criminal offense or interfere with the administration of justice. This would also be the first time in history that a member of Parliament from Newfoundland had been able to get a private member's bill through Parliament. Most importantly, an entire nation now acknowledged the injustice every person involved in this case had experienced, lifting the weight of guilt beyond the shoulders of Kate and David. They had blamed themselves for years for playing too nice, not fighting enough, trying to abide by the system. Now, the system was not only apologizing, but changing. A decade of clenched lungs finally giving way to an exhale that had almost never come. Andrew's favorite time of year had been Christmas. He had always relished every minute of the season's festivities. Since his death, Kate and David had not celebrated the holiday. That December, after Zachary's bill became law, they celebrated their first Christmas since the death of their son. Kate and David eventually moved back to California, making the most of what they could out of the life they'd left behind there. Two funds were established in the memory of their son and grandson the Dr. Andrew Bagby Family Medicine Scholarship at the Latrobe Area Hospital, and the Dr. Andrew Bagby and Son Zachary Bursary Fund for the Faculty of Medicine at Memorial University of Newfoundland, the two places Andrew loved the most. Recipients are engaging, kind, and have the ability to relate to people at all levels, a unique trait of Andrew's of which he's remembered so fondly by those who knew him. No bill or law could ever bring Zachary and Andrew back. Kate and David knew this, but they also knew that the push 
which comes from loss, is a life source. If there's anything to be learned from their courage and determination, it's that tragedies can either make or break the human spirit. For as much as they wanted to give up, they also knew that their experience was one which could bring much example and change. Holding on to themselves, holding on to each other, they mustered up the bravery to make purpose out of their pain. Somehow, they found meaning in the senseless, creating a space for hope to thrive once again. Life doesn't ask permission to have our whole in two. It doesn't ask permission to tame us. What Kate and David did shows an extraordinary fight for resilience and how we can somehow muster the ability to make a reason where it seems there is nothing but pointless calamity. Sorrow has a way of bringing out the truth in the cliches, how the darkness seems to shape the light brighter than before, how the quiet absence of life makes life all that more precious, and how we are so much stronger than we ever thought we could be when we have to be. For as much as this story is Andrew's and Zachary's, it is also Kate's and David's and anyone else who has found themselves facing the most difficult of circumstances, facing the unknown, getting up off the floor and standing on unwilling legs with determination once again. It's a story that sharpens the frail edge of hope it's a story that reminds us of the beauty of determined love. It is a way to remember that even when we find ourselves seemingly destroyed, a wildfire of life still spreads beneath our skin, making its way to the utmost depths of our soul. And if nothing else, it is a lesson that we can endure, and sometimes we must.